Take a network break. We've got stories today on new gear from Arista and NVIDIA. Cisco tries to tackle their licensing complexity, and we've got a space networking update. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. To find out what's next in SASE, sign up to watch Palo Alto Networks SASE Converge 2021. This is an on-demand webinar. You'll hear from leading voices in networking and security. Get details on the impact of SASE technology and more. You can sign up at sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. We'll tell you a little bit more about it later in the show. And then stay tuned for a Tech Bytes conversation with Nokia, where we talk about about Container Lab. This is software from Nokia where you can build a network lab, a VM or container-based network OSs for testing, training, network emulation. You can put it on a server and in some cases, even a laptop. Uh, and last but not least, if you like the Network Break episode, we've also got the Human Infrastructure Newsletter from the Packet Pushers. It's a newsletter we send every week with articles, links to great content on the web, some jokes, a little bit of fun, occasional surveys. Uh, you can mm. sign up for that at packetpushers.net slash newsletter and see all the back issues. Lots of stuff that doesn't make the cut for the show gets uh, reused in the newsletter. So if you want more information from more stuff, more press releases, more blogs, right, and that sort of stuff, products, things that, that we can't yeah. really talk about. Yeah. And, you know, as we collect links for the shows and do our research, we stumble across stuff and we try and push it out there in the newsletter. Um, and I also get a lot of stuff from our Slack channel. So if you're interested in joining the Packet Pushers audience Slack, where you might be able to chat with people and ask people questions in a friendly, non-hostile non-tracked way, then uh, head on over to packetpushes.net slash slack to be able to find out how to do Non-trackable. That's that's key. Everybody's welcome. Yeah. It's vendor, it's vendor, vendor, vendor yes. free though. So if you're a vendor, right. maybe don't come. All right, let's dive into the news. First, we'll start with Arista. They've announced new 400 gig switches for the cloud, hyperscale, and enterprise markets. Arista says the newest switches in its 400 gig line are more power efficient and have higher port density than previous generations. We've got links in the show notes if you want all the speeds and feeds, but let's start with a couple of highlights. On the hyperscale side, there's the 7388X5. It's uh, Broadcom's Tomahawk 4 silicon, so you get 25.6 terabits of throughput and 64 ports of 400 gig. And this uh, switch in particular, uh, Arista built it for the open compute Project's mini pack two form factor, which basically means they've built it for Facebook and other cloud scale companies. And the switch can run EOS, which is Arista's NOS, or Facebook's FBOS. Yeah, so 400 gig isn't new, which they don't say, but you know, more power efficient and higher port density, topic that we've addressed in the last three to four weeks as we talked about Cisco's right. Silicon One uh, updates, patches update. We talked about the different ways in which you can claim to be power efficiency and get higher port density. Uh, where mostly it's just like, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, but I think um, it's interesting that really how long it's taken to get from the announcements that we've had with the 25 terabit ASICs. You know, we've seen over the last year, we've seen a sequence of announcements from Inovium, Cisco, Broadcom, Mellanox, and yep. others, Barefoot, um, announcing 25 terabit ASICs, but we haven't seen any products come out with them so far. And now what we're seeing is... Um, which is, you know, a year later, which is about right. When they announce the ASICs, they go to sampling in the next quarter or two. And then after they've been sampled, the vendors can start to make switches, then start to rewrite the code for the new APIs that are around these ASICs, because often the ASICs have new features and capabilities may requiring the NOS to be rewritten to some mm. level or another. And then they can finally go into production and start to come out to market. So um, you're probably finding that, this is an announcement and the products will ship next year sometime, probably. Yes, they said uh, the, the the OCP one, uh, the 7388X5 is, I think, available now, but the rest are scheduled for 2022. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, the uh, the companies who are using open compute-based hardware, yeah. they want it now. Yeah. They don't want to wait. So it makes sense to ship it to those people now, now. And they have, you know, they need to get writing their own code because they do write their own. So FBOSS, for example, although FBOSS has recently transitioned to using the SAI uh, API for its uh, kernel operation, so it's starting to oh. move a bit quicker and converging on standards. So... Yeah. I, I, is there anything particularly about the hardware that stands out? Well, during? I guess just the fact that, you know, they are on Broadcom and so you get that 25.6 or on the enterprise side, they're using the Trident 4. So that's, uh, what is it, 12.8 terabits of throughput. So yeah, it's just sort of the latest and greatest. Uh, and on the enterprise side, they've got a fixed form factor and a modular form factor um, and supporting speeds from 10 to 400 gigs. So again, it's, you know, if you need it, it's going to be there when you're ready for it. Yeah, so 64 ports of 400 gig or 128 by 200 gigs in a single chip obviously is more than most enterprises need. And I um, made some notes to myself sort of pointing out that this is really, uh, you know, where are the use cases for 400 gig? And I think for most enterprises, this is not something that you want. It's the cloud companies who are operating huge data center networks that can use 400 gig to reduce the number of switches in their spines or to upgrade the capacity of those spines. And that reduces the the device count and therefore saving power, except all they'll do is add more switches at higher speeds. It won't actually save right. any power because they'll grow. Uh, the arrival of DPUs also means that servers can now pump more data than before, where before a lot of servers were limited by 100 gig interfaces and they couldn't move 100 gigs of data off the server bus, if you like, because of the way NIC infrastructures worked or because when you are moving 100 gigs of data, you're burning up one, two, three, four of your CPU cores. Well, now with the offload of smart NICs and DPUs, the NIC can actually pump probably at line rate on a sustained basis. So now you've got a capability. And particularly what we're seeing with smart NICs is the use of them as a storage uh -huh. IO. So to accelerate storage means now before they used to have hard drives on board for various functions, and now they can move completely to a driveless server architecture that operates as fast now, you know, if you've got a 400 gig interface in that server, well, now you've got a, you know, NVMe class, SCSI class, you know, disk drive interface, you know, SATA type interface or whatever the current implementation is, very close to that sort of performance if you can get it non-blocking and low latency. Yeah, and I think on the so, enterprise side, for those companies looking at some kind of high-performance computer, AI, ML workloads, these are probably a very small number of enterprises, but Arista would love you to consider their 400 gig switches uh, for those stacks. Yeah, that's right. Although Arista doesn't have a DPU strategy yet, I suspect that they will have to have one soon because what we're seeing is the DPU and the switches start to become one piece of infrastructure. So it'll be interesting to see because I think certainly what we're going to see is the server vendors are going to unify or make a play to say, if you buy our servers with the DPUs installed, you should buy our matching mm -hmm. pair of switches, if you know what I'm saying. Like, uh, So it'll be interesting to see if we still end up in a disaggregated model or we start to see bundles forming around that. We'll talk more about that in the NVIDIA piece down the bottom. Uh, there's also, for 400 gig, a very narrow use case in metro networks, a lot of metro networks for, for mm -hmm. short haul, you know, a couple of kilometers or up to 10 kilometers with just normal um, Ethernet type interfaces, you know, LR, ZX. You can get quite good um, price per mile capabilities if you drop in a 400 gig Ethernet switch with some, you know, sort of optical interfaces. They're not talking about that here, but even just with standard Ethernet interfaces, that does change the way some of the metro networks. So, and the final one is uh, obviously the use of 400 gig in 
HPC clusters, high performance yeah. compute, and also very much AI ML. So I don't see 400 gig as much of a enterprise technology, except for a few, you know, really outlying niche use cases in the enterprise. I see this as really um, specific use cases that are large and substantial, but when a vendor comes out and bloviates about 400 gig, mostly I'm sort of going, yeah, yeah, whatever. I think obviously the early customers are going to be, you know, hyperscale or cloud and that's fine when enterprise is ready for 400 gig Arista can welcome them with open arms. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention is that Arista is touting uh, programmability on the enterprise side of the house on the Trident chips, um, but it's not P4, it's uh, Broadcom's NDL language. So if there is some kind of special feature your enterprise absolutely has to have in terms of packet processing on the ASIC, uh, you can work with Arista and they will work with Broadcom's SDK to get that feature to you. Now, that's a shame in one way, and it's probably a reality in the other, in the sense that P4 has a nice, universal, easy to use, you know, it's what everybody right. else is using, except Arista. <laughs> and Broadcom um, is the issue, I think. Broadcom is trying to make, yeah, that's right. And NDL is a proprietary um, language uh, for programming mm -hmm. the forwarding plane. So if you want to use it, you almost have to have a license from Broadcom to be able to do it. My guess here is, and this is just complete speculation, is that the supply chain problems, Arista's said, we want some guaranteed supply and Broadcom's gone, well, maybe we could do a deal if you just include our API, we'll give you some preferential supply. That would be absolute speculation on my part. Uh, yeah, my feeling is that uh, this isn't an Arista issue. I'm sure Arista would be happy to support a chip running P4 if a customer asks for it, that, that it's, they're a Broadcom customer. Broadcom is the one who's saying we're not using P4, we've got our own. And so Arista just has to play that game. I don't think people are, there's not that many people using P4 or doing programmability. We're still not there yet. Most people just happy to have a switch it forward. That, that's the other thing. And mostly they're still, you know, most people are still arguing about how superior BGP right. is. Instead of actually thinking about software defined. Particularly you know. for the enterprise, a programmable ASIC is not top of mind. It's way down on the feature list unless you've got a very special use case. I think even for most clouds, Drew, that idea that you're going to be able to write code that takes advantage of Now, absolutely, some of them are, and they are applying a massive amount of resources and money. Uh, but I think in the main... Arista gets to say, yeah, we've got a programmable right. forwarding plan and everybody nods wisely and ticks exactly. that off the and yes. then away they go. Check the box and yeah. move on to what you really need, which is probably, yeah, which, yeah, is, not, which is not programmability, uh, but, you know, telemetry and other features that are already on the box and you don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. All right. Again, links in the show notes. If you want all the speeds and feeds, we'll move on. Uh, the Wi-Fi Alliance has announced a new certification program for Halo. This is a low power, long distance Wi-Fi specification based on 802.11ah. Halo certified IoT devices will, op will operate in the sub one gigahertz band and can reach distances of up to a kilometer. Yeah, I stumbled across this by accident this week. I was monitoring a feed of some unrelated site and it suddenly popped up. Uh, this is something that's actually been around for a couple of years, but it's new to me which sort of points the figure at the Wi-Fi Alliance not doing a very great job of telling people about it, perhaps. But uh, I think it's interesting that Halo, H-A capital L-O-W, is fundamentally a low-powered version of Wi-Fi for IoT type. And the idea here is that it operates in the sub-1 gigahertz spectrum. That is somewhere between 700 and 900 megahertz. That means it's the same as television, old style television, not digital television. So it can penetrate buildings and walls and it gets quite mm. good distance. And you're talking something like up to a kilometer here for the 802.11ah. Uh, it also has a range of signaling options. 
So it will, depending on the device that you implement and depending on the Wi-Fi, um, if you read the white paper talking about Halo that I had to lie to be able to get access to because the Wi-Fi alliance puts everything <laughs> behind a, uh, you have to be a member to get in. And then everybody, you tweet that and everybody says, oh, but it's it, everybody knows how to get in. You go, that's not the point. The point is that I'm not a member and I shouldn't have to be to get open yes. information that they want me. Anyway, don't get me started. <laughs> and you'll notice that the Wi-Fi alliance is not the IEEE. Another one of those situations where the IEEE does all the standards, but they can't be bothered telling anybody about it. So you have a, an alliance outside of the IEEE that actually promotes the standard or tries to talk about the standard that the IEEE created. Anyway, whatever. Um, so this is kind of a, a standard that lets you get like up to a kilometer or so. The idea is to run at very low power. So there is a range of signaling options that run at very, very low power. The idea is to get multi-years out of a button right. type battery yeah. type application. It's a really interesting technology if you're an enterprise. The challenge here, of course, is that there are a number of other competing standards here. If you think about the consumer market, you've got Apple's Thread You've got another one called Matter. You've got uh, Eco, uh, Ecobee. You've got a, a bunch of Zigbee. You've got a bunch of them out there already in the consumer market. Uh, the telcos have come out with LoRa, Sigfox, and NBIoT. And now you've got yet another one. And, of course, you've still got all the personal area networks, Bluetooth, yep. et cetera, et cetera. How many of these do we really need? Did we really need the IEEE to come in and muddy up the waters? So I'm not... Uh, I'm sort of torn about this, Drew. I mean, that's the thing with uh, certification programs and, and standards bodies. If I'm a device manufacturer, I want, you know, it's nice to be able to put, to slap some certified XYZ on my device to make sure, because I hope the idea is that it will appeal to the broadest number of customers. And as an end user, you want to, I guess, a little bit of assurance that, you know, these systems you're putting into a factory floor or uh, tying into farm equipment or irrigation systems is actually going to work as advertised. And so that's the function of these. But yes, I mm. agree. There's a lot of muddying of the waters, although in some ways it's also good to have competing standards because they may fit specific niches and they may compel each other to advance the technologies a little further. It's just... You know, if I'm a device maker, if I'm making an IoT sensor, the question now is which one of these that's, do I support? That's the problem. If you're a device maker, what, which one do you put the effort into? Uh, if you're a consumer, it's probably going to be yeah. Apple. If you're industrial, you're going to probably go with the Wi-Fi or the low RAM. Yeah, well, you're going to end up supporting Apple or some Zigbee, maybe some Bluetooth as well for setup. But if you're going to take it into the enterprise, but do you want to connect it to LoRa, which is what the telcos are using? The telco's LoRa gets up to like five kilometers and a, and a 10 year battery life out mm -hmm. of a button, but it's only sort of a hundred bits per second to maybe say 50 kilobits mm -hmm. per second mm -hmm. tops. So whereas Halo is going to do like a kilometer at up to 10 megabits per right. second. You can do streaming video on between that one and, Halo, and 10, yeah. right? Yeah. No. So if you want to do a camera, then yeah, but. You know, and there's a whole bunch of good security features in here. I mean, let's face it, the IEEE has potentially learned its lessons over the last 10 years of how not to design a security standard, potentially. They've certainly messed it up enough with Bluetooth and, you know, all the different 802.1 Wi-Fi standards over the last 20 years and how to get it wrong consistently over and over. So maybe there's a security angle in here. Anyway. Yeah, to round that out, they are supporting WPA3 security uh, in addition to just uh, base IP support using the IP protocol. Yeah, yep. which is good. So in one sense, hopefully we've got all the standards on the table now. 
it's going to come down to do if I'm an enterprise I, you know AP maker, do I support Halo or do I go with LoRa? And I see signs that a lot of uh, a lot of Wi-Fi companies have sort of gone, well, when is Halo coming and whatever, but it seems to have been approved and certified now this this week. So the final technology certification came out uh, on the second of November after you know several years of work. Um, if I'm a vendor, do I make something that's roughly congruent to existing Wi-Fi, you know, operates in the same sort of spectrums, does the same sort of, it's an IEEE, I guess it's going to come down to the ASIC makers here, who's going to make silicon that supports it. And then the Wi-Fi, the branded Wi-Fi vendors will just implement uh, that whatever the ASIC gets gives them. So really it's going to come down to Broadcom and it's Wi-Fi chipset. I mean, the, the Wi-Fi Alliance already has a lot of pull with AP vendors because the Wi-Fi Alliance is the ones who do the... Wi-Fi 6, Wi-Fi 6E, et cetera, certification. So they've got those mm. relationships. There certainly is. And it's also going to depend on whose patents got into the standard. <laughs> so, you know, if the ASIC maker got most of its stand, its patents into the standard, it's going to promote the standard that gives it the most patent revenue, right? So, yeah, it's not as simple as we're going to pick the best technology because the best technology might actually be an ASIC maker who makes the most money out of the technology that it's submitted and managed to get the IEEE to agree to. Is your moment of cynicism. Just a That's dash right. for today, just in case you hadn't <laughs> noticed. Yeah. Right, again, links in the show notes if you want to dig into it yourself. Uh, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. They launched the industry's first conference dedicated to SASE or Secure Access Service Edge, the SASE Converge 2021. You can sign up to see an on-demand version of the event. You'll hear from industry veterans, including Palo Alto Networks founder and CTO, Nir Zook, Gartner's VP and distinguished analyst, and one of the fathers of SASE, Neil McDonald, and the godfather of SDN himself, Martin Casado. Uh, you'll know as an early pioneer in the development of OpenFlow and the founder of Nicira before it was acquired by VMware. You also get to see Palo Alto's new Prisma Access 2.2 capabilities in action, get details on the impact of SASE technologies, and learn about forthcoming innovations. If you want to see this webinar on demand, go to sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. That's sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com and register. We thank Palo Alto for being a sponsor. Oh, I like virtual conferences. I don't have to queue for the toilet. <laughs> That's right. And you can have better quality coffee as well. And peaceful. And you can sit there and watch it and you can stop it and yell at the screen. <laughs> Which I'm sure you do. Where you can, you know, take a drink every time they say digital transformation and turn it into a nice drinking game. Yeah, well, that doesn't last very long, unfortunately. <laughs> all right, moving on. Uh, NVIDIA made a huge number of product announcements at its recent conference. We can't cover them all, but we've got some highlights, including the Quantum 2 InfiniBand networking chip and the Morpheus AI platform. So NVIDIA had their GTC, which I think stands for Global Technology Conference, whatever. They're another one of these vendors that has the uh, initiatives, uh, a bowl of announcements. There's literally like over 45, I think, major announcements came out of the event, a bit like VMware. And we often talk about the event as being, you know, they save up their announcements to the point of constipation and then let them uh -huh. all go at once. So I've picked out two, which is really all we have time for in the format that we have at Packet Pushes. Uh, the first one is a technology group, which I'll just loosely call Quantum 2. Now, Quantum 2 is mainly, the idea here is that it's a 400 gigabit per second InfiniBand networking mm -hmm. platform, and it consists of a switch, the Connect X7 uh, network adapter, which Mellanox. comes from uh, Mellanox's, from the Mellanox acquisition, and the upcoming Bluefield 3 DPU, SmartNIC, and then all the software that puts all this together. So remember I said a minute ago about how the days of the switch being separate from the DPU, being separate from the server? might be going away. Certainly that's how NVIDIA sees it. 
So you can actually go to NVIDIA, get a 400 gig in Infinity Band platform. Uh, they claim in their press release that this doubles the network speed, triples the number of network ports, and accelerates the performance by 3x and reduces the need for data center fabric switches by 6x while cutting data center power consumption and reducing data center space by 7% each. Is there an echo in here? I'm sure there's an echo. It does yeah. sound a lot like the yeah, Arista power. announcement, including down to port density, 64 ports of 400 gig or 128 ports of 200 gig. Yeah, and they're also going after <laughs> high, high performance computing, supercompute applications. Yeah, so I told you there was an echo in here. Um, <laughs> so the interesting part, uh, uh, the a they actually published the the keynote and they had their CEO publish the keynote. Now, their keynote, uh, their CEO is actually not too bad at public speaking. He doesn't send me to sleep within about the first five minutes. Um, with you know, It's not entirely clear that this guy spends his entire life reading spreadsheets. He might actually have a personality, but it's quite good. And it's also because they're using um, this as a showcase for their GPU. And a lot of what NVIDIA are about is graphics and rendering and the idea of doing 3D modeling and all that sort of stuff. So the the presentation is really interesting in the sense that it does a better job of demonstrating the future of um, assisted reality or augmented reality. I don't think virtual reality will be a thing, but what I thought NVIDIA was talking about was it does show you a future of what an AR-verse, you know, an augmented universe might be, and you can see it from the keynote. So if you've got a spare hour to sort of um, sort of listen through it, but watch it and you might get a sense. Maybe you'll see the same thing that I did. Maybe you won't. If you do, let me know. Go over to packetpushes.net slash FU and you can send me some follow-up uh, or tell me what your thoughts are and then we can have a debate around about whether my perspective is the right one or the wrong one. But what I think here is that NVIDIA Quantum 2 is sort of the assumption that customers really don't know how to build systems themselves that do AI, ML, HPC processing. Right, it's this idea of building a lossless Ethernet fabric and having the right DPU, and loading the right software onto the DPU, and then having apps on the DPU, and then having a server architecture with the right GPUs. That's all very specialist stuff, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, in the academic environment, you've got folks who can probably put together a system, but in the enterprise environment or even cloud, uh, you want to have a, you may be more comfortable having a partner handle the, that hardware and low-level software for you and you just buy it off the shelf. That's right. So you can actually now go to NVIDIA and buy, you know, five racks of AI processing. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, like a rack level, right? And part of that is this networking architecture, Quantum 2, 400 gigabits InfiniBand. Now, InfiniBand, if you're not familiar with it, is kind of a, it's half software, half networking. It has a, a, network, a physical networking component to it. But when you're uh, writing software to use InfiniBand, you're actually doing direct memory access between hosts. And InfiniBand supports a series of APIs in the NICs that, yes, the data is packetized underneath, but what you're actually doing is memory transfers between systems in, in, inside of a cluster. And that's the feature that most InfiniBand networking people want. And it also has to be said that most people who are doing high-performance compute or data science know InfiniBand and don't know much about Ethernet. A lot of them can barely spell IP and they just run their networks purely on IP, on InfiniBand, and then they have an IP gateway mm -hmm. somewhere in there. And so I get the sense here that what NVIDIA is doing is saying, all right, well, this, this is the product that customers want. They know InfiniBand, they're comfortable with it. Uh, we can sell it for three or four times what we can sell it for for Ethernet. That's good. We make more money out of that. Um, and we get a bunch of um, acceleration capabilities that Ethernet just can't do. So I think there's a lot of things going on here, you know, meeting customers where they are, giving them what they want. 
um, and then turning it into a HPC or an AIML tool. And, and that's, that's the bundle going on here. It's all Mellanox, right? Mellanox was already very big in InfiniBand. And when they bought Mellanox, my speculation was at the time it was less about Ethernet and more about the InfiniBand and the DPU. And that would... I might be right. Here. Yeah, so you've got Mellanox uh, on the network card side, uh, and then in, uh, NVIDIA gets to tell its story about the DPU, about that offload capability, about the acceleration. So it's kind of a win-win because they also now own Mellanox. Hmm. That uh, vertical integration story. Yeah, and really, really interesting that all of this hardware that NVIDIA's put together comes with software as well. So it doesn't, you know, it's not like, here's the NIC, congratulations. <laughs> you actually have to have a bunch of software to run it and load um, so an example, they talk about during the keynote, they talk about their ability to accelerate um, standard Python data science libraries. So if you're running um, frameworks inside of Python like NumPy or the Graft software, they can accelerate them thousands of times faster if you have their acceleration hardware and their acceleration software fitted to a server. So it's not so much that, uh, and then if you are doing spe specialist stuff, even more specialist stuff, then you've got access to particular APIs and particular function calls and particular frameworks that NVIDIA is giving to you. And then everything behind that just works, right? So there's this spectrum of, of capability. NVIDIA is saying, well, you can have our hardware and go and accelerate. You can, we'll give you a whole hardware software framework and then you can use that. Or we'll even come and meet you right up where you are inside of your you know, Python data science or, you know, Rust uh -huh. language or whatever, and we'll give you integration with those libraries that'll yes. accelerate you. Really interesting approach, really bundled up approach. And it'll be interesting to see whether the market takes it on or rejects it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, just to round this off, um, NVIDIA is selling this platform through system vendors like Dell, HPE, Lenovo, Penguin, and others. One other thing I want to note, I feel like we've been talking a lot about HPC this episode and the previous one where we talked about Rockport systems, which is also targeting the HPC with a switchless network architecture, essentially just connecting uh, cards and servers to each other through a passive optical box, essentially. Uh, so we've got the Arista approach, 400 yeah. gig do it. You've got the NVIDIA approach, do it over InfiniBand in this new option, the switchless card-to-card -card, uh, connectivity. And no one's really talking about Ethernet and all that. So as an example of these frameworks, um, NVIDIA did announce a thing called Morpheus. This is a new framework powered by NVIDIA GPUs, Bluefield DPUs, to, and it allows security vendors to develop AI solutions. Now, this is both a combination of the hardware and software we just talked about. It is a software framework for cybersecurity vendors to feed collected data into. And then, as they say in the press release, NVIDIA Morpheus combines Mellanox in-server networking and NVIDIA AI to do real-time all-packet inspection to anticipate threats and eliminate them. Leading hardware, software, and cybersecurity solution providers are working closely with NVIDIA to optimize and integrate data center security options with the NVIDIA Morpheus AI framework. This includes companies like Cloudflare, F540, Net, Guardicore, and others, and also VMware. We had an announcement a couple of weeks back around VMware. So basically what you're seeing here is um, this: uh, somebody, these vendors can go and buy NVIDIA certified systems, turn them into appliances to run inside your data center to do real-time cybersecurity monitoring inside the network. And all the cybersecurity vendors got to do is take the NVIDIA backend that they provide to you and feed the data into it and wrap a front end around it. Very similar to most of today's firewalls. They're not ground up developments from, not all of them, but a lot of them are not ground up developed. They just run on Intel hardware, using an accelerated NIC to get the appropriate performance. But really there's just 80-20, only 20% of that product is actually developed by the security vendor. 80% of it comes from somebody else or licensed through other parties. 
So um, it's interesting to go and look at NVIDIA Morpheus and see what the future of cybersecurity in the data center will look like for normal enterprises. Now, this is a couple of years out, but I found it very educational to sort of give me a vision into what the future looks like. Yes, and again, it ties back to their Bluefield DPU, which uh, they would love to have everywhere. Mm-hmm. All right, again, links in the show notes if you want to check that out. We'll move on. Cisco recently announced a new enterprise agreement to make it easier for customers and partners to buy, sell, and manage Cisco software and services. Uh, the new EA gives customers one set of terms and conditions for software across five of Cisco's portfolios, including network infrastructure, security, and applications. So this is what I think will be widely uh, welcomed, although with a sense of resignation by most people, the Cisco licensing scheme around its products has been incredibly complicated. Uh, it's been each particular business unit inside of Cisco is pushed in a different direction one way or the other. And I think customers have been telling Cisco that the licensing program needs to be fixed. Certainly, um, so many people have talked about it to me about just how difficult it's been to come to live with Cisco's licensing. And a lot of customers have left Cisco just on that basis. Uh, so this feels uh, more in the better late than never category. Enterprise licensing agreement, a single contract across all of Cisco's portfolio and solutions, as they say, offering predictable costs, more choice, greater flexibility for organizations. Um, and I think, yeah, okay, fine. Probably well overdue, I think, uh, at the I end mean, of the day. I mean, it feels like uh, complaints about Cisco licensing is almost a meme now in, in tech Twitter. It's so common. Yeah, and, and people just expressing so much frustration about it. Uh, and so at the end of the day, when your licensing gets so complicated, I spoke to one engineer, 60% of his entire life was spent working oh, on Lord. licensing with Cisco. <laughs> and he didn't have that, that much gear. That sound fun. And he wasn't no. happy, right? Because he's not doing something interesting. Like, you know, researching licensing schemes and stuff was a, was making, and I think actually he's probably, I think he's left by now to work on a different vendor's product because he just couldn't, was just so unhappy about the whole situation. So, uh, but there is that, I think... This is now going to become a comedy act because customers talk about Microsoft's enterprise licensing with a sort of faint sense of resignation, like they're never happy about it, but they kind of say it's better than what it was. So, you know, yay, I guess. So maybe Cisco has uh, become Microsoft-like in this way. All right, our last story for the day. The U.S. Federal Communications Commission has given Boeing the green light to launch more than 100 satellites into orbit as Boeing slowly rolls out a space-based broadband service to compete with the likes of SpaceX Starlink service. Uh, SpaceX had complained to the FCC that Boeing's broadband service would cause interference with its own, but the FCC dismissed those complaints and Boeing is now free to start launching. Oh, billionaire squabbling. Right, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's my space program and you can't have it because it's mine. You know, uh, I think SpaceX is really, you know, just being nasty here and saying you can't send out. But a lot of these Silicon Valley companies sort of try and project a very friendly face. But behind the scenes, they normally like really oh, brutal to each out, other yeah. and mm -hmm. very hostile. Yeah. And this is one of the ways where they use, you know, they run around saying like, we don't want any government regulation. We want to be outside of the control. We want to do it particularly on our merits. And then of course, when suddenly it f they can get a competitive advantage by using the government or by suing each other, you know, then that's exactly what they do. It's, it's hypocrisy writ large. Um, I mean, SpaceX is so far ahead of the competitors that any sort of objection was pretty much going to get knocked down just on competitive grounds. So I'm pretty sure that was part of it. 
But the idea that SpaceX is going to get interference at the same time as they're up in front of the FCC whining about other people getting into their spectrum all over the place, like all by the fact that they are getting into face of other people's spectrum as well, is hypocrisy of the great of our highest order in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, the Ars Technica article that we're referencing uh, happens to mention that um, uh, SpaceX complained about Amazon uh, going to the FCC to complain about SpaceX, and then SpaceX does the same thing with Boeing. So yeah, it's, it's hypocrisy all the way around. Yeah, well, the DOD is arguing with SpaceX and saying you can't use the spectrum, and it goes like, "Well, we're gonna," <laughs> right? And it took it to, and the, so you can't have it both ways. Like it's it's hypocrisy writ large. There's and there's a bunch of these things where SpaceX has got been allocated spectrum by the FCC, and the FCC shouldn't have allocated that spectrum. It belonged to other purposes, and those people are now fighting back. And SpaceX just goes, "You can't have it. You know, it's ours. It's you know whatever." And so to complain like this is, as I said, hypocrisy writ large. But that's okay. You know, we'll see what happens. What the U.S. government does is always a bit uh, opaque these days, especially around the FCC. I sort of wonder what Boeing's play is here because they are very far behind at this point. And it sounds like uh, they're not actually in that much of a rush to get these approved satellites into orbit either. So I, I, I don't know. that. I wonder if, you know, they're saying it's oriented toward consumer, but I'm guessing given all of their government contracts, maybe they think they can move a little slower and then have sort of a a government broadband satellite angle here for their government customers? Uh, having a license is worth value. It's worth billions, basically. And if there's an emerging company that wants to set up a satellite network and try and get catch up with SpaceX quickly, they might go and buy the rights to this business unit from Boeing and get uh, a head start. Sort of like having a liquor license, even if you don't own a restaurant, you can leverage that in other ways. That's right. So same sort of idea. If you've got a license to own Spectrum, uh, for example, Dell, uh, Michael Dell has been buying up TV stations around rural America. He wasn't buying them to run the TV stations. He was buying them for their Spectrum licenses. And he's now has a pool of Spectrum allocation throughout rural America, which he's now selling to 5G telcos so that they can have Spectrum in places for broadband stuff. So Yeah. Spectrum is, is money. All right. Again, links in the show notes if you want to read the story for yourself. That does wrap up our news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Nokia about Container Lab. Their software would change to make it easier to set up and run a network test lab using container and VM-based network OSs. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we discuss Container Lab. This is software that lets you build virtual network labs on a laptop or server. It supports a variety of network OSs for network emulation, training, and testing. Container Lab's an open source project developed by Nokia, and Nokia is our sponsor for this episode. We're joined by Roman Duden. He's product line manager at Nokia. Roman, welcome to the podcast. And so I described Container Lab briefly. Can you give us a few more details about just what it is? Yeah, sure, of course. So Container Lab is a small, uh, single binary CLI tool that allows you to deploy both simple and complex virtual networking topologies from the comfort of your terminal. So you're talking here specifically, I think the secret to this product is in the name, Container Lab. So you're literally building lab environments of network devices in containers. Why, why is that more efficient than the other ways that we've been doing it up until now? Yeah, yeah, you got it right. So the distinctive characteristic of Container Lab is that the topologies that we build, they are basically comprised of the containers and not VMs as, as we used to. And the way we did it is that historically when Nokia released its containerized network operating system for data centers, SR Linux, we realized that there was no, no tool that can you know, deploy containers and wire the links between them in a user-defined fashion. So one had to use Snowflake, bash scripts to make such topologies and that couldn't possibly scale or be convenient to use. 
So hmm. that we that that is why we created Container Lab to basically clear this gap. Now it also has to be said there's another key transition here in that a lot of modern network operating systems can run in containers where years ago that wasn't true. So when we look at other tools that are out there, they're built the way they are because that's the way things were. But most of the modern NOSes can run in a container. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not only Nokia or Linux that that can run with Container Lab. We do support quite a lot of other containerized network operating systems, both from, from various vendors such as Arista CUS, University RPD, Sonic, FRR, you name it. So what is it that folks are supposed to do with Container Lab? What's, what is it for? Well, it's a good question. So I think uh, one of the way I like to think about Container Lab is that it can be used both by individuals like network engineers who want to, you know, test some something with network operating system and they want to do this quickly. They can do they can use Container Lab and spin up a topology for themselves, or it can be a team that work jointly on some use case and then you create like a catalog of labs. And because we use the declarative fashion for defining container lab topologies, the teams can, you know, check these labs into Git repository and then version them, version them there, use it, uh, pull it from, from the Git repository. And that is one of the nice benefits about container-based labs. Now, this, the simplistic form of this would be to run containers on a desktop. But if you're going to be able to run a continuous integration or a continuous deployment pipeline from GitHub or something, that also means that you could set this up to uh, as an abstraction of your existing network and do some testing. If you're going to configure a complex configuration, you could build this up on a server somewhere or in a data center or in a cloud and do some valid testing before you go for a live deployment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we, we currently see people use Container Lab for is that they build complex CI CD pipelines with it. So the way we used to deploy you know, software uh, on the CI CD pipelines, the same way we can now do and deploy the network topologies and then test both the network and the software sites in the same CI CD pipeline, be it GitHub Actions, GitLab, or whatever, whatever CI tool you use. So you can really create those CI topologies and mm. Container Lab will be deployed for you on the on the pipeline. All right. So you could build up a whole script, a deployment script, and then build a model of your ISP backbone or your data center interconnect or your, you know, how your front end connects to the back end, things like that. And then actually run tests of BGP routes being injected or deleted and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that people typically do with Container Lab is that they create a pipeline where the first step is to deploy the topology. That would be your mm -hmm. step number one. And then in the next steps, you create your uh, service configuration, be it BGP, be it OSPF, whatever you want to test. And then in the final states, stages, you just, you know, test the, the protocols and the data path, and it all runs on the container lab topology that is being deployed on, on step number one. Are there any prerequisites I need to use container lab? I presume since it's got container in the word, I might need Docker. Yeah, yeah. The only thing that you actually need is Docker and curl to download the installer script. And then when you have these two prerequisites met, it's really just like three seconds and you will have Container Lab installed on your machine. And we do not limit you with the operating system. So you can do this on Linux. That is, that is the operating system of, of our choice. But you can also do this with uh, Windows if you have VSL2 and on macOS as well. And you mentioned being able to create a lab and then essentially share it on GitHub. So if I had a lab that I thought was cool that I'd want to share around to colleagues or just folks in the industry, I could put it on 
GitHub or another Git repository and, and let other people use it? Yeah, true. So from basically day one, we wanted labs to be easy to share. And by utilizing container runtime, we made a vehicle to predictably deploy labs on any machine that has this runtime installed. But then we needed to come up with a topology definition syntax, so, so, so to call, that users could define their lab in a simple text file. And because the file is a simple text file, you can check it to Git and anybody can pull it from it and deploy the same lab as you initially created it. So essentially users just, users just need to create a single YAML file where they you know, define their topology by saying, I want this number of nodes, I want this number of links between those nodes, and that's it. And when I'm in the lab and I want to create connections between nodes, how am I doing that? Is it CLI? Am I using something else? You use the same topology file that defines your topology. So you, when, when you say you have two nodes, that's like a bare minimal topology. In this topology file, you say, I want this node to be connected to this node. And ContainLab will do the wiring for you. It will create the virtual Ethernet pair between those containers. And thus you will have the clean data path Basically, it's a point-to-point -point link uh, in the network, in you know, lingua that will be created between those nodes. So we will have a clean data path between the nodes. Since I'm running in a containerized environment, are there any limitations because I'm in, you know, sort of a software emulation environment and what I can do networking-wise? I'm thinking like MTU or other things. No, not really. The only limitation that you might hit is the limitation of the container image that you use. For example, if there is some limitations in the data path that containerized NOS uses down below, then you will hit them. But apart from that, it works exactly the same as the VM product would work. And is it only good on containerized network OSs or can I also run VMs if I wanted to? No, you can really run VMs. And the way we do this is that we, we utilize the VRNetLab project and we package the VMs inside containers. So as far as ContainerLab is concerned, it only sees containers, but some containers will host VMs inside, inside of it. So basically, yeah. you can have your regular VMX in a container, and that will be good. Not hugely efficient. You tend to need a lot more CPU and memory to drive that. But if that's the only way to get around it, that that's a workable solution. Yeah, absolutely. Not not every vendor and not not every OS has a containerized packaging. So if you mm. still need to work with the operating system that is currently being deployed as as a as a VM then the only way to do that with Container Lab would be to package it in a container. And the footprint of that system is basically exactly the same as, as, as with original VM. Right. So are there any, you know, if I wanted to run multiple different kinds of network OSs in a lab, say I wanted to try, see how Sonic uh, interacts with Arista and how that interacts with SR Linux, can I do that or am I limited to, you know, one set of NOSes at a time? No, you can mix and match all the supported NOSes that we have. So you can have, as you said, Sonic plus FRR, you can mix in some VM-based products as well. And uh, the way we do this is that we say we support a number of kinds and you pick and choose which kinds you want uh, this topology to feature. So it's really up to you what you want to have. And this is open source software, you said? Yes, it is completely open source. We have a GitHub project under the SRL Labs GitHub organization. It is called Container Lab. So anybody is encouraged to look at it and contribute to it. It is written in Go. So if you are familiar with the language, you will be able to contribute to the project, which would be awesome. So, so there's been a lot of virtual labbing tools. Would this suit somebody who's looking to skill up like and move up in their career? 
is this the sort of tool that would work for them in that sense? Like some of the other tools um, are quite complicated to get running and they take several days of effort to get them up and going. And if people wanted to switch away from that, is, is there something that would attract them? Yeah, I think totally because of the simplicity of the installation and the way Container Lab works, it might be really simple for anybody to start working with the networking operating systems as a, in general and with containerized NOSes as well, because I think containerized NOSes are the way forward. We will yeah. have more of them in the coming years. So embracing the future now may be really helpful. And the thing here is that Nokia's SR Linux is freely available. I can download, I don't need to go and you know, get some sort of license or beg for permission or steal a copy from a BitTorrent site like most people do for other stuff. It's just there for me to use. Yeah, 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 exactly. We made this step by opening uh, SR Linux container image. So if you pull the repo that has containerized NOS, which is SR Linux, you will be able to run it without doing anything. You just download one file, you use container lab deploy command, and your lab with SR Linux nodes will be on your machine in under a minute, basically. So what was Nokia's motivation for putting resources behind this project? Well, we wanted to, first, we wanted to solve our own pain, pain problems when we needed to run topologies with, with SR Linux in the internal engineering community. But then we saw that, you know, it's not only feasible to us, it's feasible to everybody and everybody can leverage from it. And when we open sourced it, we, we saw a lot of influx from all the different vendors and uh, third parties who wanted to make this tool even better. So by opening it up, we we got some external developers helping us making the container lab better. So you're you are getting involvement from other people as well. I want to ask a bit of a, a weird question here. One of the problems that uh, we've had in lab environments is there's certain protocols that don't work well in VM environments, certain L2 protocols particularly. Have you managed to be able to address those? Yeah, I've been, you know, burned up myself quite sometimes by by being not able to use LACP, for example, when I use Linux bridges yeah. and the data path with GUI-based emulation products. And to overcome those, it is it's not that easy, right? And the way we 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 overcome this in container lab land is that we use this very clean, clear data path channel, which is virtual Ethernet. So we do not use any Linux bridges. And because of that, any protocol can flow. There is really no, you know, nothing can block any data frame that you send over it. So with that, you have your LACP frames passing by, you have a LLDP and all that framing stuff that, that can be complicated otherwise. That's, that's quite useful because a lot of the times in other labs, you have MTU limitations because you can't run beyond a certain size because you're using a virtual NIC driver the NIC driver can't do more than 1500 bytes or whatever the, the particular platform's Absolutely. on or, you know, that sort of stuff. And that ability to be able to get more actual modeling of the real network without having to say, oh yeah, no, I just, I can't get test coverage of the BFD or the LACP or whatever. That, that, that actually is quite helpful, I think. Yeah, 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 true. And MC lag as well. So it, it is just painful to be limited by something that is not really the software feature. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, high fidelity testing relies on as having a test lab that is as close to the real thing as possible. You can't have the real thing because having two networks, one for a test and one for live, just that's just not practical. But this is getting closer to that to that thing. 
All right. Well, this does bring us to the end of the episode, but uh, if folks want to get their hands on Container Lab, they want to play with it, Roman, where should they go? They should go to containerlab.srlinux.dev. That is the main documentation side behind Container Lab. All right. So that's containerlab.srlinux.dev. We'll also have that link in the show notes. Uh, thank you, Roman, for joining us. And thanks to Nokia for being a sponsor. This is an interesting project, and I think it's going to get a lot of interest uh, from our listeners. Um, so if you like this show, we've got many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>